Hello, it's your old friend slash adversary Helen here. I've missed you listeners and I miss our answer me this festive episodes. I learned so many things over the years about the shitting log and Rudolph's mucus folds in his red nose and Dr. Seuss's doctorate. And if you want uh, that kind of AMT content, just seek out episodes that were released in December's of the years that answer me this was on air. And we also have our Christmas album, which you can find at answermethisstore.com. But on my other show, The Allusionist, there are also excellent festive episodes. Uh, so I have conveniently put a couple of them in your feed today. Uh, but there are other ones as well at theillusionist.org and in the pod places. There's one about um, a couple living in New York City who started getting loads of letters delivered to their apartment that were addressed to Santa and they thought, oh, we're going to have to fulfil them. So they had to become Santa. Essentially, it's very sweet. Uh, there's an episode about the different names we have for Santa slash Father Christmas slash uh, Saint Nick and uh, also why people used to send uh, Christmas cards with meat on them and uh, uh, wasps and a lot of death and uh, there's one from um, 2020 where singer-songwriter and podcaster Jenny Owen Youngs and I endeavour to write an appropriate Christmas song for our first year of Covid as it turned out and um, unfortunately that song is still quite relevant in 2021 it's a great song I wish it was completely obsolete uh, so uh, I'd recommend you go and listen to those but first from underneath the illusionist Christmas tree is this episode about Winterval byword for war on Christmas the war on Christmas when did that start? Upon the birth of Jesus Christ himself, when King Herod ordered all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem be killed? In 1644, when Oliver Cromwell's Puritans passed an ordinance prohibiting Christmas celebrations in England? In 1659, when the Massachusetts Bay Colony Puritans managed to get Christmas banned for 22 years for being a pagan festival? Or was it in 1998, in Britain's second largest city, Birmingham? If you picked up practically any newspaper at the time, you would have read that Birmingham City Council had renamed Christmas Winterval. Birmingham will celebrate the festive season as usual this year with carol singing, fairy lights and street entertainment, but don't call it Christmas. Council officials have renamed it Winterval in the hope of creating a more multicultural atmosphere in keeping with the city's mix of ethnic groups. A politically correct decision to call Christmas festivities Winterval. Cancel Christmas, call it Winterval. Birmingham Council, claiming it was anxious not to offend those in other faiths, renamed Christmas Winterval. Political correctness gone mad. Crazy council chiefs provoked outrage last night after naming Christmas festivities Winterval. Political correctness Political gone correctness mad. Gone Political mad. correctness gone mad. Churchmen believe the Winterval name is intended to avoid offending Muslims and other minorities. Political correctness gone mad. A municipal brainwave called Winterval, renaming the annual holiday and likening it to shopping rather than shepherds. Political correctness gone mad. The word Winterval has a nasty echo of communists who banned any Christian connotation in East Germany. Political correctness gone mad. Gone mad. And verily, in Britain, Christmas was banished. Now we sing Winterval carols and wear ironic Winterval sweaters. We hang up our Winterval stockings for Father Winterval to fill with Winterval gifts. And when we turn on the radio, we rock around the Winterval tree to these festive tunes. It'll be 
Winterval. 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 Yep, that's exactly what happened. Well, it's about as true as most things that have been said about Winterval, which came about thanks to one Mike Chubb. Hi, my name is Mike Chubb. Um, you could say that I was the one that has caused a fury that is Winterval. In the late 1990s, Mike Chubb was the head of events for Birmingham City Council. From our point of view, from my, myself as the, the manager of this huge event section in Birmingham City Council, and my team of something like 30, um, we, we came up with the terminology Winterval. Um, uh, it's like a, port, a portmanteau word for winter and, and, and festival. I thought it was a portmanteau of winter and interval. I must say, to sort of suggest this hiatus in the year. No, it's it's between winter and festival. I think it's a good portmanteau. It's quite elegant. Until it became shorthand for war on Christmas with a side of political correctness gone mad. It started well enough with Birmingham's first Winterval in 1997. Events ran over several weeks and were attended by hundreds of thousands of people without complaints from the press or the populace. So it's not clear why the following year's Winterval became a wincident. But... It did. In November 1998, the then Bishop of Birmingham, Mark Santa, no, not as in clause, issued his Christmas message to the clergy of the diocese. It said, I wonder what madness is in store for us this Christmas. I confess I laughed out loud when our city council came out with Winterval as a way of not talking about Christmas. No doubt it was a well-meaning attempt not to offend, not to exclude, not really to say anything at all. And soon the papers got hold of it. On the 8th of November 1998, the Birmingham Sunday Mercury reported that the Bishop of Birmingham had condemned the City Council's attempt to rebrand Christmas. What happened then was, of course, all those papers thought, hey, this is a good wheeze, you know, not much news at Christmas, is there? Let's use an interesting story. Did you know Birmingham City Council have cancelled Christmas or renamed Christmas Winterville? Thereafter, it went nationwide and worldwide. Pretty much the only person who didn't notice was Mike Chubb. Because I, I was, I was so busy at the time, I didn't take in any of the uh, the media furore at the time. It just didn't touch me at all because I, I literally we were working forty-one days non-stop, day and night. Busy work waging the war on Christmas, except that wasn't really what Mike and the council were doing during the war on the war on Christmas. In this war, only one side turned up to the battlefield. It was the media, really, that actually took it, took it on. People like the Daily Mail, just go on to Google and Google Winterval and just look at the organisations who are up in arms about it. They're up in arms because they've been led to believe that that's what Birmingham City Council intended. It wasn't? No. Christmas was never off the page. It was part of... 41-day, if you like, festival of events. But people thought you were trying to rebrand Christmas. Yes, they said it's political correctness gone mad. But actually, political correctness had not gone mad. Political correctness had not even been a factor. Because the council's events team was not trying to rebrand Christmas. It was trying to bundle together a whole lot of events occurring in the weeks before and after Christmas. 
Birmingham is Britain's second largest city, with a very culturally and ethnically diverse population. There's a lot of stuff going on, particularly at that time of year. Hence, they decided to use the marketing banner, Winterval. You feel like it does what it says on the tin. It markets a major festival at a time of the year called winter. Um, and there are all sorts of things that happen in winter. You know, Diwali happens in winter. BBC Children in Need happens in winter. You know, Chinese New Year happens in winter. New Year's Eve happens in winter. Hanukkah, Eid. Oh, and Christmas. Christmas lights, Christmas market, Christmas trees, Christmas carols. It was still called Christmas. You know, that particular event, which included the Christmas lights switch on, it was about a month of events over Christmas that came under Christmas. It was termed Christmas. It had its own brochure, Christmas. <laughs> but unfortunately, people decided not to to see that. They, they decided that that's what the council did. Shortly after the war on Winterval erupted in the papers, the council actually issued a statement that they were not renaming Christmas, and Christmas was very visibly a major part of the Winterval lineup. But which story sticks more? The true one that Winterval was a marketing and admin umbrella, or the lie that Winterval had come to kill Christmas? Nobody actually could see the simplicity of the Winterval brand, um, but they read into it what they wanted, you know, to give voice to their own aspirations and prejudices. Now, personally, I've noticed significantly more uproar about the war on Christmas than actual evidence that that war is being waged. Some people seem very eager for there to be a war on Christmas so they can leap to Christmas's defence. Though Christmas has achieved cultural dominance way beyond religious lines, to cast it as an underdog provides a cover for taking a pop at other cultures and to create and maintain divisions in society. But Christmas is a pagan Roman Christian festival celebrated by people from all sorts of cultures with all sorts of beliefs, including me, an ethnically Jewish atheist. Christmas is not threatened by multiculturalism. It is multicultural. People don't like change. They're scared of change. And to a certain extent, Winterval was used as an example of a change that's gone too far because they misread what the organisers are trying to do. And they continued to misread it. After 1998, Birmingham didn't run Winterval again. But in the following years, the Winterval myth was repeated dozens of times in Britain's national newspapers. In fact, in 2011, after running another such piece, the Daily Mail had to print a retraction saying that Winterval did not rename or replace Christmas. But too little too late, Winterval had already become the byword for political correctness gone mad. And it still continues. Just a few weeks ago in the British Parliament, Shailesh Vara, the Conservative MP for North West Cambridgeshire, told Prime Minister Theresa May that minority communities should respect the views and traditions of mainstream Britain. And that means, and that means Christmas is not winterval and Christmas trees are not festive trees. I do agree with my honourable friend. Well, we can all agree with him that Christmas is not winterval, since it never was winterval. And it's so simple. It's not, it's, not, it's not difficult. It's just certain people just decide to say what they want to say. Maybe they want to create a bit of a stir because it sells papers. But in a way, as a marketing story, it is very successful because the brand really clung on. If you just called it, I don't know, Birmingham Winter Holidays, no one would... Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's just unfortunate that the brand had been so misinterpreted. That's right. That's right. Yeah. If you had your time again, would you do it differently? No. Good for you. People have got to experiment. They've got to. They've got to introduce, and and the public needs to be introduced to new, exciting initiatives. Because otherwise, we're just going to live in a very dull society. Something that is very evident in Winterval celebrations, or specifically Christmas celebrations, uh, in a lot of countries is how Victorian Englandy they are, and how Dickens influenced they are, and why. Why did uh, the author Charles Dickens get to be the authorial poster boy for Christmas? Here is an illusionist to explain that. So we're in the parking lot of Cow Palace. There's a gun show happening at the same time. Oh, yeah. It says, Welcome, Patriots. (laughs) We We are here for the Dickens Fest. Excuse me. Katie Mingle and Avery Truffleman of 99% Invisible are about to enter Victorian London. In the Cow Palace Arena in Daly City, just south of San Francisco, California. It's also like sunny and 60-ish degrees. It feels not Christmassy at all. (laughs) The Great Dickens Christmas Fair entrance... It's a giant portrait of Santa Claus as you walk in. The Dickens Christmas Fair has been an annual event in the Bay Area since 1970, founded by husband and wife team Ron and Phyllis Patterson, who previously had started the Renaissance Fairs in the backyard of their home in Los Angeles. Their kids run the Dickens Fair now. It's held on five weekends prior to Christmas and is 120,000 square feet of Victorian London festivity. Whoa. <laughs> My goodness. Wow. <laughs> they did a really good job. Okay, so it smells like apple cider or something. Spiced. Spicy. It's sort of set up to look like an old English, like, like a market or sh- like, I don't know, what would you say? Like, yeah, they're like storefronts. And right here, there's a big old-timey sign that says champagne. And there are, like, barmaids serving champagne. Uh, and there's lo- they're British... Oh, my God, Helen, there are British flags everywhere. Um, all along the ceiling. It looks like a film set of a street. The streets are named things like Nickleby Road, Cratchit's Yard, Pickwick Place... Fezziwig's dance party. Yeah, we do have a map. We do have a map. Hand-painted map. So we're on Nickleby Road right now by Charles Dickens' house. The streets are thronging with people in different interpretations of Dickensian costume. Not compulsory for attendees, but encouraged. Oh yeah, that that baby is like wrapped in a potato sack. Like that, that man actually took his baby, put dirt on its face, wrapped him in a potato sack, and brought him to the Dickens Fair. The Dickens Fair's London is also inhabited by scores of volunteers in well-researched period costumes. Before the event, they've been taught relevant history, given vocabulary guidelines and chosen names from a selection of approved Dickensian names. I'm sorry, do you want to tell us your name? Oh yeah, Hortense Snevelecki. Of the, the theatrical family Snevelecki's. 
Oh, and there are English accents, which I thought were all right. You go straight down until you hit the docks. And if you go any further, you're going to hit the Thames. You don't want to hit the Thames. And there's, and there's a Thames here? Well, of course there's a Thames. We're in London, you where's, silly where's fool. Where's she from, anyway? She's I don't know, but they're, but they're giving me that look that says, ooh, you've been having a little too much laudanum, haven't you, Missy? Laudanum was not a controlled substance in 19th century Britain, but it is now, so the Dickens Fair doesn't sell it. But there are lots of places to buy tea and ale. There are performance stages a fencing academy, shops, lots of shops. Drawbenders, fine hats and bonnets. <laughs> I've been wanting a bonnet. Really? No. <laughs> shops selling Victoriana, such as corsets, jewellery, pies and wands. Hang on, wands? Right, OK, well, I don't, I don't really know where that's come from. Historian Greg Jenner has visited The Illusionist before. In the episode Xmas Man, he talked about the history of Santa Claus and Victorian Christmas cards with dead mice and bacon on them. Greg knows a lot about history and a lot about the history of Christmas. So I asked him to check a few things at the Dickens Fair to see whether or not they are Dickensian. I don't, I don't think Magic Wand's particularly Dickensian, but I may be wrong on that. So uh, They're $15 each. Yeah, I guess that's, that's just Harry Potter rolling over into some other season, isn't it? They're like, we've got a lot of wands left. Uh, what else is British? Uh, Dickens, that'll do. Or perhaps someone just mixed up their David Copperfields. There's a lot of commitment here. It's just interesting to see this many people go there, you know, like play make-believe on this grand a scale. Yeah. Like all ages. It's kind of wonderful, really. There's a man in a top hat. Yes, top hats, no problem at all. I mean, this is obviously the era of both Dickens and Abe Lincoln, both of whom were top hat aficionados. Happy Christmas! Happy Christmas. Wait, why does no one say Merry Christmas? Um, that's an American sort of thing. Only Happy Christmas. Only Happy Christmas. Greg, Happy Christmas, Dickensian, Merry Christmas, non-Dickensian? Uh, season's greetings were very varied in Victorian times. It's uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Christmas and uh, season's greetings and Happy Yuletide and biblical quotations and lines from carols. So, frankly, there's no real wrong way to say Happy Christmas or Merry Christmas uh, in a Victorian fair, other than saying Cowabunga Christmas, which would be obviously completely inappropriate. Are there particular words or phrases that are, like, useful to say that are that learned? Bollocks is wonderful. Like, that was bollocks! There's one guy, the, bo- the bollocks, not bollocks guy. You know, he has a sign that says you're either bollocks or you're not bollocks. And then he, people walk by like, you're a bollocks. He's like, I walked by and he said, you're bollocks when the baby's not bollocks. Greg, the word bollocks? Well, I mean, that's a good old English swear word. I don't know off the top of my head if, if Dickens ever used it in his novels. Perhaps he did. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's got a long history. It goes all the way back to Anglo-Saxon English, bollocks. So... Uh, if your if your if your festival is all about sort of quaint Britishness, then bollocks is our standard go-to English insult. It's our quaintest swear. I think so, isn't it? There's this one alley where everyone was dressed up as like a beggar or a prostitute, or I guess a um, what is it? The Artful Dodger is a pickpocket. Yeah, and pickpockets and chimney sweeps. Like there are a lot of people with fake mud on their faces here. Which is kind of a weird thing to, like, dress up as a poor person. It wouldn't be my chosen form of escapism on the weekend, sure, but 
being rich is expensive and hard and you have to do boring things and when you're a scum you get to gamble and drink and scream a lot and it's really fun. But I think we completely underestimate the terrifying daily stresses and strains of of not having enough food, of having um, sexual violence if you're a, a woman who was a sex worker, of the diseases, you know, the infant mortality rates, the fact that children are working in factories and, uh, and are pickpocketing on the streets, uh, the lack of educational reform. There is an enormous canvas of of sadness, of human sadness, which Dickens picks up on. But there's a strange romance to it, which we seem to revel in. And I don't quite know why that is. Yeah, what was the life expectancy? Oh, incredibly poor, really poor. The average life expectancy in 1820 was perhaps something like 40 years old. And now we're closer to 80. The factor, of course, that's contributing to that is massive infant mortality rates. You have a really high chance of having at least two children die on you if you have a family of six or seven kids. Women would frequently have very serious illnesses in childbirth. More often than not, the thing that would kill a woman would be complications from childbirth. Uh, for men, of course, uh, you have the military military service um, being particularly dangerous in the age of the British Empire, which is off travelling the world and conquering things in a ruthless fashion. But also, of course, you have terrible diseases and no understanding of germ theory until the 1850s and 60s. So there are horrible cholera outbreaks that people don't understand what spreads cholera. There is uh, scurvy, there is dysentery, there is a typhoid just terrible deprivation there that people unable to feed themselves unable to have healthy diets there is chalk in the bread you know it's this is a period of history where you can die of an ear infection or you can die of a, a, a scratch on your wrist anything can get infected so it's really not a very nice time to be living if you don't have quite a lot of money and even if you do have money you might still die young as happened to several of dickens's closest relatives Okay, let's go see yeah. if we can peek in. We're we're getting close to the house of Charles Dickens where he's writing. You can see in the window. He's oh writing. Oh my goodness. What is he writing? Could be one of his 20 novels and novellas, dozens of short stories, articles and plays. But given the environment, there's quite a high possibility that he's writing something about Christmas. The Christmas Carol wasn't his first Christmas story, but it was such a hit that, like Mariah Carey re-releasing All I Want for Christmas Is You, each year afterwards there was pressure for Dickens to keep supplying festive material. His other Christmas stories, uh, The Chimes, The Cricket on the Hearth, The Battle of Life, um, The Haunted Man and The Ghost's Bargain. He also writes in Household Worlds, which is his sort of magazine. He'd be working on stories for the Christmas edition of the magazine from July of each year. There's the Christmas tree, a Christmas dinner. There's a very sad essay written in 1851, the year in which four of his family members die, called What Christmas Is As We Grow Older, which is a kind of tribute to them, but also a calling out in defence of Christmas and saying Christmas is about looking forward and hope and hoping for a better future, while at the same time remembering those who've gone before. So he 
returns to Christmas many times in his career. And indeed, Great Expectations starts with a Christmas scene, but none of those matched the success of A Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol is by far and away his best, his most defiantly popular and most influential Christmas story. How many other books have been adapted hundreds of times for film and TV? The popularity of A Christmas Carol has never waned. It was an absolute smash hit straight away. It was published on the 19th of December 1843, and by Christmas Eve it was already sold out. The next year the book was adapted several times for stage and reprinted and reprinted. It has never been out of print. Dickens did public readings of the book in Britain and the US until his death in 1870. And beyond... Yeah, we're at, we're at Charles Dickens' house, and where he will be doing a reading. But this is a very elaborate house. It's like completely set up like a full interior. And there's like a swooning couch and a fireplace and a bookshelf. Tchotchkes all over the place, pictures on the wall, rugs, full, full nine yards. This exterior is a painted, like, stone. So Charles Dickens, wearing a long black coat, is standing at an, a wood podium reading dramatically from A Christmas Carol to a crowd that has gathered, a costumed and non-costumed people sitting in his house. He's very enthused. He's like going beyond the podium. He's leaning into the audience. He's using his hands. He's gesticulating. Scrooge said it with an earnestness that could not be mistaken. He clapped him on the back. A merry Christmas, Bob. Merrier, my good fellow, than I've given you in many What do you know about Charles Dickens, Katie Mingle? So little. <clears throat> I was in a production of Oliver once. But Dickens is one of those authors whose work you kind of know without even having read it. Some authors' work sticks so much in cultural consciousness, their name becomes an adjective. Kafkaesque, Orwellian. Dickensian. Well, Dickensian is a, a very, very broad idea. Uh, there's an incredibly uh, vast canvas of what we think of as Dickensian. And even though we use it as a word, that word itself has so many different interpretations and meanings. Men with mutton chop sideburns and stovepipe hats, women with hearts of gold and tragically short lives, orphans fending for themselves while menacing adults lurk around every corner. Please, sir, I want some more. And Christmas. Merry Christmas. Christmas goose, Christmas ghosts. God bless us, everyone. Dickensian is quite a tricky word, actually, and I think we don't always necessarily know what we mean when we say it. As a word, it kind of conjures up poverty, perhaps, a sense of squalor, a sense of people trapped in this sort of brutal society where there is no safety net, there is no fallback plan, where children and young women can suddenly be cast into a life of poverty or crime or violence. But Dickensian also really should sum up some of the beautiful things, some of the wonderful things he harnesses. You know, when we look at A Christmas Carol, the way he depicts the street scenes and the sort of children and people singing and saying hello to each other, the sense of community, the um, the shop windows uh, filled to the brim with delicious goods and um, treats to eat on Christmas Day and toys in the window. You know, this is a also a bountiful um, visual iconography, Dickens conjured up both quite alarming and also quite um, enrapturing, uh, entrancing visions of what a city and a community could be. So Dickensian tends to be quite negative, but it, it really should, I suppose, apply to all of the different 
uh, worlds that Dickens created. And, and some of those were rather pleasant and lovely, and some of those were rather cruel and dark. But yeah, like, what's his deal with Christmas? Dickens? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of authors have written about Christmas, but don't have festive fairs devoted to them. Why does Dickens get to be the adjective? Why is he given credit for Christmas? You know, one of the things people often say is that Dickens invented Christmas, which is absolute nonsense. Of course he didn't. Charles Dickens's Christmases are not brand new in 1843. He perpetuated some traditions. He, uh, he reinvigorated others. There had been Christmas for centuries. There had been traditions that he had grown up with as a child that he perpetuated and shared in his books. Singing, feasting, charitable donations... That's all medieval, Tudor, Stuart, Georgian, whatever you want to call it. So Dickens is not the architect. He's a cheerleader. Very different professions. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe so. I mean, they both build large structures, don't they? A Christmas Carol landed at a time when there was a trend for nostalgia. The 19th century is an era where you have many folklorists and antiquarians taking an interest in the old ways. There is definitely, in the 19th century, this idea of a mythologised past, of uh, the Tudor era being the sort of halcyon days. Just as we have Dickensian festivals in San Francisco and we look back to the Victorians, the Victorians looked back to the Saxons and the Normans and the Tudors as a kind of glory days of simplicity where the good old days of Christmas were were much more pleasant and because in in some ways the victorian christmas is a reaction to industrialization the trauma of enormous economic thrust of people moving from the countryside into the cities of communities being broken up of dark satanic mills of factories of trains and industry of the british empire expanding and people being separated by huge geographical distances not only that, A Christmas Carol was riding a wave of renewed interest in Christmas, so along with the revival of older festive customs, there were new ones emerging that decade too. Christmas cards were suddenly logistically viable, with the invention of the penny post in 1840. Christmas trees also became popular around then. King George III's German wife had introduced them to Britain in the late 1700s, so they weren't completely new, but they were newly fashionable when, in 1848, Queen Victoria, Prince Albert and their children posed in front of theirs for the Illustrated London News. And like when whatever Kate Middleton wears sells out, Christmas trees became all the rage. So quite a lot of traditions, what we think of as traditions now, that we assume are Dickensian, they're not Dickensian. They just arrive at exactly the same time through pure coincidence. And it's all mushed together. And this Victorian festival suddenly feels like it's this brand new thing. But it's not. It's a continuity with some extra additional elements. And... Um, the capitalism ramps it all up. Christmas is a commercial economy without parallel. It's incredibly capitalistic. It had been for a while, but in the 19th century, it becomes more so. And you see the emergence of Christmas magazines, Christmas books, Christmas toys for children, which is a new market that's just sort of opening up. But Dickens's main intention wasn't to cash in on Christmas. I mean, he did need the money, though he had had considerable literary success the previous decade, Lately, the serialisation of his novel Martin Chuzzlewit hadn't been too popular and his income was looking dicey, plus he had a growing family to support and was often bailing out his parents and siblings too. And Dickens did sincerely love Christmas. His children wrote about the relish with which their father approached the festivities each year. But that wasn't the primary motivation either. 
Instead, his heartwarming Christmas fable was the cover story for a political mission. He was a man who had a tremendous political appetite and who was of the middle classes and, of course, befriended the upper classes, but was always on the side of the working classes. And this, of course, was largely because he'd experienced poverty as a child. Dickens was the second of eight children in a pretty close family and had what he considered to be an idyllic childhood until he was aged 11, whereupon his father, who regularly had financial problems, was sent to prison for debt. And as was custom at the time, Dickens's mother and younger siblings moved in there with him. For a year, Charles Dickens lived alone. He had to quit school and work 10-hour days, six days a week at a boot-blacking factory. Though the family did reunite, the experience stayed with Dickens, informing much of his work and political attitudes. He is a man who's always championing those who have had a, a less fortunate life. He campaigned against public executions. He thought they were vile and grim. You know, he campaigned for, for women. He campaigned for better schooling for children. He's a man who, who uses his voice uh, as a campaigning tool. Though in the Victorian era, Britannia ruled the waves, coloured the globe pink, etc. At home, many people were destitute. The Industrial Revolution had ushered in such huge societal and economic changes that century, but welfare and health services had not been instituted yet. And Dickens was horrified by the poverty so many people were stricken by in 1843, particularly the conditions children were living in, on the streets, in schools for the impoverished, working down mines or in factories as he had done himself, and he was desperate to make a palpable difference. As a journalist, he planned to write a political pamphlet about it, entitled An Appeal to the People of England for the Benefit of the Poor Man's Child. But he realised that not many people would read a political pamphlet. They would, however, read his fiction. And as a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, Dickens coated his plea for social justice with a feel-good Christmas ghost story. And so Dickens, you know, later on would write many, many journalistic pieces and editorials and he would he would use his power as a journalist and an essayist but with a christmas carol he's using his power as a sentimental novelist to move people to action to inspire them to be better christians to be better british people to be better neighbors family members lovers friends um co-workers colleagues etc it's a book about charity and it's a book about community and about what happens when the ravages of capitalism uh, erode the human spirit and they, they corrupt the heart of Scrooge. You know, he was a man who once felt, who once cared, who once loved. And ultimately, over the years, he's been sort of gradually worn down by this Victorian urge to make profit, you know, economy, industrial progress, moving forward. And he's lost his humanity to the point that his own family, you know, don't really want to hang out with him. They don't really know him. He's lost all of his empathy for his fellow man. So A Christmas Carol is an allegory, a very Christian allegory, a deeply spiritual book about a man who has become lost, finding his way back to his humanity. And Dickens's mission did succeed, somewhat. The book was credited with causing a rise in charitable giving and greater generosity to your fellow humans and employees at Christmas. But it couldn't totally transform society. Literature can move us, but ultimately structural systems are very hard to shift. And the Victorian period, you know, had many, many years of 
of moving forward and, and very small steps being taken with you know children's rights or educational reforms and so on, the rights of women in particular. The Christmas aspect may have overwhelmed the political message. Though the sentiment to be kind to fellow humans hasn't been lost, it's there in all the screen adaptations, even the ones riffing on the story, like Scrooged, or running a little further away with the inspiration, like Bad Santa. But I tell you what, I reread it this week and the original still works a treat. Because it's a really readable book. The characters leap off the page and it's really moving and inspiring and you desperately hope that Scrooge stays reformed. It's really funny as well. I think one of the disadvantages to the word Dickensian is that it makes his work sound like it's going to be stodgy as a Christmas pudding boiled for eight hours. But it's not a cosy period piece. His book is a reaction to the economic situation in the 1840s. So his book is deeply modern, and yet his outlook, his attitudes, his sense of nostalgia and whimsy is, of course, in many ways, deeply traditional. So he is bringing a kind of fusion between hyper-modernity and old-fashioned, old-timey, lovely nostalgia, days of yore. And when we look back at Dickens, we do the same. Well, I hope you enjoyed those festive illusionists and uh, do go and uh, listen to the other ones as uh, outlined. There's also a handy playlist at theallusionist.org slash festivillusionist and then a load of other very interesting episodes about how language works and what we're doing when it issues forth from our mouths and brains. And um, wishing you a merry or at the very least tolerable winterville. And in the, in the Southern Hemisphere, going to have to get a different portmanteau for you. It's not straightforward, is it? It's not straightforward. Bye.